It is um, wonderful when um, our time of worship is just so in tune with the message. Uh, thank you to Jordan and Alex for really preparing our hearts uh, to, to, to unpacking some of the things that we've been talking about and reading about and singing about. And so um, we're continuing in our series on what Christians pursue. And um, as was read in the text, and as you might uh, get a clue, we're looking at the pursuit of freedom from Galatians 5. Now, you may know this passage to be more famous, I suppose, for the fruit of the Spirit, which is uh, towards the end of the text. We don't normally think of the idea of freedom when we come to Galatians 5, but... um, The chapter itself starts with this call to freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Therefore, keep standing firm. Hold fast. Get a grip on. Hold tightly to. Do this continually. That's why I believe that the freedom being spoken of here is something that we should actively pursue. It is not something we do as a once-off, but something we do time and time again, consistently, continually. Therefore, we'll be looking at the pursuit of freedom from this text. Commentators have called the, uh, the epistle to the Galatians the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. And so we want to be looking at the text in chapter 5 in the context of the entire epistle, really, to get a grip of what is Paul talking about when he says, when he talks about freedom. I mean, how are we to understand this freedom? Is it freedom in the nationalistic or patriotic sense? Is it freedom in the political sense? Freedom in the economic sense? of financial sense? Is it just philosophical or ideological? Is it freedom in the moral sense? How are we to understand freedom? Because if we want to practice freedom, then we need to understand what it's about. Only when we've understood what it's about can we then put it into practice in our daily lives. And I hope to show you that This concept and idea of freedom has great implications for our daily lives, how we live, and especially how we worship, why we worship even. And so to understand the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about, we need to trace Paul's argument from the very beginning. And when we do that, we see that freedom is being spoken in the context of wrong doctrine, false teaching. So turn with me to chapter 2 for just a second. Paul is comparing false doctrine to slavery, and the implication is that freedom from false doctrine is freedom. Truth brings liberty. Chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. But it was because of the false brethren, false teachers, secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us to bondage. So teaching false doctrine equals bondage. Verse 5, But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain in you. Not yielding to false doctrine equals liberty. False doctrine, bondage. Not yielding to false doctrine, liberty. So it's quite clear that from the way that Paul begins uh, the, his, his, his argument that he's, he's talking about freedom not in a political or commercial or economic or financial sense. He's talking about freedom in the context that is theological and doctrinal. And if you know anything about the Galatians, you know that Paul was writing because he was concerned that error had crept into the church. Error that was compromising the, the, doc, the, the gospel. Error that was compromising the faith of the people. Error that was putting them in spiritual peril of being lost. And so this was not just any small mistake, something that could easily be looked over. 
I mean, you, you, you could be forgiven for saying, Paul, why are you up in arms against this thing? Because it's a big deal. It was a big deal 2,000 years ago for the Galatian church. It's a big deal for us today because the matter is of eternal significance. And so after a brief greeting in chapter 1, Paul is immediately on the offensive. If you look in chapter 1, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Verse 9, and we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed, anathema. And so very clearly the context of freedom is established in the context of the gospel. And so if we want to understand what freedom is, if we want to practice this freedom, we must first understand what the gospel is. Stay in the gospel and you will be free. Depart from the gospel and you will be a slave. And that was what Paul seems to be communicating. It's a very harsh sounding communication. He's not pulling any punches. Like I said, because the consequences are eternal and grave. As we study the text, I hope that you will see the direct connection between the gospel truth and freedom between good news and liberty. We've been singing about that. And so hopefully our song will be more informed when we read the text about what freedom actually is for us. What's more, I hope that you will understand that there is no other way to look at freedom in a biblical sense. There's, and therefore there's no question as to am I free or am I not free? Maybe, maybe not. No, it's quite clear from the text. And so hopefully we will be able to evaluate for ourselves, are we free? Can we truly sing about freedom as we have sung? And so with that as an introduction, let me give you our outline. I want you to remember four words. Very simple words, short words. And the four words are seed, soil, roots, and fruits. Seed, soil, roots, and fruits. Simple words. And the reason I want to give you these four words is because we're going to look at the whole epistle, pretty much, of Galatians. And there's a lot to take in, so I hope to that you would remember what we're studying about freedom specifically through these four words, seed, and soil, and roots, and fruits. And so in chapter 1, we're looking at the seed of freedom. In chapter 2, we will look at the soil of freedom. In chapters 3 and 4, we will look at the roots of freedom and in 5 and 6, mostly 5, if we can get to 6, we'll get there, we'll look at the fruits of freedom. Now, this is not by any means a technical outline. Uh, you know, the, the, those are far more complex and detailed. There's about 20, 30 almost uh, points in, in the outline to the whole epistle. But the purpose of us is, is trying to gain an understanding of freedom in the context of the gospel. And so we're just going to fly over and have a bird's eye view of these chapters. So as we begin, let's look at the very beginning in chapter 1. So if you turn there, uh, we're looking at the seed of freedom. And here we want to understand what is the source of freedom? What is its origin? Where does it come from? Why is it a big deal? Look at verses 6 and 9 as we've just read. 6 to 9. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by, by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Strong words. Different gospel distort the gospel, a gospel that is contrary to what you have received. 
The seed of freedom is the gospel. That is where everything begins. We are talking about freedom in a gospel context, but what is it about the gospel that we need to understand? And Paul is at pains to make the Galatians understand and to us to understand that there is only one gospel. It is singular. The gospel does not have any versions. The gospel does not have any revisions. The gospel does not have any editions. The gospel is not something that was something different in a different context, in a different culture, in a different society, to a different people group and different today. Paul is saying that there is only one gospel. Yes, people might want to distort it, but then that's not the gospel. That's not less of the gospel. It is not the gospel. I want us to really understand this. That by decreasing the amount of gospel content, we don't just reduce the gospelicity of the message, we destroy it. 99.9% gospel is zero gospel. It does not evolve. It does not have alternatives or substitutes. It is a singular message that communicates a singular truth and there is no other way to look at it. It is what it is and that is all it's ever going to be. Not only does it not change, but nobody is allowed to change it. Why is Paul being so dogmatic about the gospel? Why so black and white? Why so rigid? Why so inflexible? Look at verse 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. These verses give us two characteristics of the gospel. Firstly, that it is singular. It is what it is and there is no other. And second, it is sacred. It comes from God. The gospel is a message from God. Man does not have the liberty to rewrite it or revise it or re-engineer it or re-anything to it. Why shouldn't we play around with it? Why shouldn't we arrange it? Why shouldn't we modify it? Because it is the power of salvation unto man. The gospel is God's message that brings God's power, that brings God's salvation. The gospel is God's liberating power. The gospel is freedom. It comes from God who wants us to be free and so we do not have the liberty to tinker with it. Because when we start messing with it, when we start rejigging it, we don't make it less of the gospel or an adaptive gospel, we destroy the gospel. Deviation is destruction. Revision is ruin. Alteration is anathema. We do not mess with the message. That is why if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let him be accursed. There is only one way and only one way to be free. There is only one message that liberates, and that message is from God, and we do not dare mess with the message. And so the, the seed of freedom then lies in the singular and sacred nature and message of the gospel. 
on to our second point, the soil of freedom. We want to look at this in chapter 2. And here we want to see what is the ground in which this seed of freedom is planted. What is the soil in which this seed of freedom can grow? Chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. The word justified occurs three times in that text. Twice it occurs in a negative sense. Not justified by the law, no flesh will be justified. And there's only one time that it's used in a positive sense, so that we may be justified. So Paul is being very clear as to how you are not justified and how you are justified. So be clear and ask yourself the question, am I justified? What does the word justified mean? Well, it means to be considered right in God's eyes. It is a legal term of declaration where God says, yes, you are right, you have a righteous standing in my eyes. Your level, if I can call it that, of righteousness is what is required according to my standards. And so here we come to the greatest challenge in the text and it's a challenge to our intellect and our ideology that by no work of the law can man be justified. We do not bring anything to the table in order to be considered righteous in God's eyes. And we find it hard when we live in a society where our family, our friends, our colleagues and our neighbors and those across the street from us find it very hard to understand why am I not good enough? Why is it that the things that I do are not pleasing to God? Why is it that my efforts count for nothing in His sight? Well, the Bible tells us all our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's pretty, pretty harsh from a human standpoint. But let's not look at it from a human standpoint. Let's look at it from God's point of view. How sinful is sin in His eyes? It is an abomination. God tells us in His Word that it is a stench in His nostrils. It is an odor that He cannot abide. He cannot stand the smell of sin, leave alone the sight of sin. So morality by itself does nothing to earn anything in God's sight knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, by works of the law will no flesh be justified. Our culture stumbles over the same stumbling block that the Galatians were stumbling over 2,000 years ago, and that is man adds nothing, brings nothing to the table. He contributes nothing to salvation. And as one commentator has said, we add nothing to salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. That's the single-minded message of the gospel. That is the seed of our freedom. But what is the soil in which it grows? Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. So then how will they be justified, Paul? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified. How will we be justified, Paul? By faith in Christ. And not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Paul tells us twice in one sentence how we are to be justified just in case we don't get it. 
I'm not justified by what I do. I am justified by what I believe. What do I believe? Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what I believe. That's the summary of my faith. That's what should be the summary of all our faith. If we claim to be Christian, if we claim to to be one with Christ, if we want to partake of communion, if we want to be part of a body of Christ, then this should be our confession. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is no other soil for the seed of, faith, of, of freedom to germinate other than faith. I believe that Christ gave himself up for me. Why? Why did Christ give himself up for me? Why did he die for me so that I wouldn't die? Or why would I need to die? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have failed to rise up and meet the standards that God has for us. It's a, it's a message we don't like to hear because it tells us we're not good enough and we don't like listening to that, that we're not good enough because in our own eyes we think we are. I have to die because I'm not good enough for God. I have failed to reach the standards that He has set and my only punishment is death. God is a holy God, He is a just God, He is a righteous God and He needs to punish sin. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him needn't die but he can enjoy everlasting life for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus And this is the grace of God that He shows us, shows sinners like us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the knockout punch comes in verse 21. If righteousness came through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And Paul's saying, look, if it was possible for you to be righteous by adhering to the law, then you don't need Christ to die for you, but I've already told you that by by the righteousness of the law, no one's going to be justified, so Christ needs to die for you. And so he's making a connection between justification, between being seen and regarded as God as being righteous, he's, mean, he's making a connection between justification and the death of Christ, and what is that connection? Faith. By faith I believe that Christ died for me. I repent of my sin. I see the holiness of God. I recognize my shortfall and I repent. I recognize that that repentance means that I believe that Christ died for me. That repentance requires that I have faith that Christ did not just die for me, but that death was an acceptable death in the sight of God the Father, He accepted this sacrifice as being an adequate payment on my behalf. I believe that, by faith I believe that there is nothing left now that is owing to God because of the debt that I owe Him owing to my sin. I believe that it is fully cancelled. I believe that 
there's nothing now that I can do that could create a further debt. I believe that not only did Christ die for me and take my sin, I also believe that He gave me His own righteousness. Where does it say that? It says that in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, so that in Him we would become the righteousness of God. What a beautiful exchange. What do we sing today? And can it be? Can it be? Can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He died for me. Me who, who caused his pain. Me to him to death pursued. Amazing love. Amazing. How can it be that my God should die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. And then you have that beautiful message of freedom. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Faith is the soil in which the seed of the gospel is planted. If the sun will set you free, you will be free indeed. If the sun has died for you and set you free, you will be free indeed. The question is, are you free? That's the question, isn't it? Do you want to be free? Do you want for yourself to stand in front of God, bold I approach the eternal throne? Do you want to be able to do that and stand before God, not in any righteousness of your own, but in the righteousness that Christ gives you? And if you want to be able to do that, then that is freedom. Because God has stopped pursuing you to the, to the death. Because the sword of judgment of, of, of God's righteous wrath is over you, but now it is gone because Christ has died for you. Do you believe that? Do you want that to be yours? Do you want to be able to stand and sing before the throne? Worthy is the Lamb. All hail King Jesus. If we, want to, if, if we want that, we must know that we have to be free in order to be able to do that. Heaven is not a place for captive souls. Heaven is a place for those who have been set free so that they can worship God in spirit and in truth, in love and in faith. Well, you don't need faith anymore because you see Him face to face. But till that time, we had nothing. We had nothing. And so we see that the seed of freedom, we see the soil of freedom, and we come to our third point, the roots of freedom in chapters 3 and 4. And so far, uh, Paul has laid down the singularity of the gospel. He said that this is one message and there's no other message and it is what it is and there is no other and that's all it's ever going to be. And then he talks about the soil and he says that this, is, this, is, it, it, this, this root, this seed takes, takes root in, in, in the soil of faith. And then he proceeds to show his audience that what he's telling them, just in case they thought he was just talking out of his hat, is that this is not something new. It's as if he's saying, if you think righteousness uh, you know, comes from keeping the law, then let me take you back and show you someone who didn't have the law. But he was regarded as righteous. And so he traces the roots of the gospel all the way to Abraham. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. 
Does he who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And as you know, the bone of contention in the, in the Galatian church was that was circumcision. Those uh, false teachers, Judaizers, who, who came in saying, look, uh, you know, faith is fine, but you've got to be circumcised. Faith is not enough. You need works. You need to adhere to the law. You need, you need, you need to do things in order to be saved. And Paul is saying, okay, if that's the case, then let's look at circumcision a bit more. Let's look at where circumcision started. Let's go back. Let's look at Abraham, the father of the Jews. How was he justified? Let me read to you from Genesis 15. You know the story, but I just want to read the text, so it's not my words. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. Abraham. He hadn't changed his name then. Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And obviously, Paul's audience knows all this. They've read this. And Abraham said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And so Paul's saying, Look, you are the children of Abraham or you want to be counted as the children of Abraham look at Abraham how is he justified not by circumcision because circumcision only comes in chapter 17 Abraham was justified righteousness was reckoned to Abraham's account because he believed he had faith that God would do what God had said Circumcision comes later. God said further to Abraham, Now is for you, you shall keep my covenant. What's the covenant? The covenant that I just read. And you and your descendants after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision was meant to be a sign that a covenant had already been instituted. God didn't make the, the, the covenant because Abraham was circumcised. God made the covenant way before. And so Paul's argument is really compelling and conclusive. He said, your standing before God is not based on what you do. It is based on what you believe. This was the case for Abraham. And it's the same for you. Verse 7. Be sure that it is those who are of faith. Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. But that's not all. Because we see that the, that the faith has its roots not in the work of man but in the promise of God. And so the message of the gospel has its roots in a covenant relationship that God has established with one man thousands of years ago. Now in an immediate sense, who is that man? Abraham. But in an ultimate sense, who is that man? Christ. And look down. In um, verses 26 and 29. 
For you are all sons of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, as according to the promise. The gospel is not a New Testament idea. The gospel was preached to Abraham. What's the gospel message? That God will bless every nation through one man. Abraham and then ultimately Jesus Christ. And so God has made a promise and the law which came 400 years later does not cancel that promise. That's what Paul's argument is going to be in, chapters, in these chapters. And so what's the purpose of the law? Why give the law if no one's going to be justified by it? Because the law reveals our sin. The law reveals God's holiness. The law, the law reveals God's standards for living. The law doesn't save, the law condemns me. The law doesn't save, but it tells me how I can be saved. Chapter 3, verse 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Why? So that we may be justified by faith. So the roots of the gospel are in the promises of God. Therefore the roots of freedom are in the promises of God. We are free because God has promised that we would be free. All those who are participants in Abraham's inheritance by faith. I need to understand and recognize that my freedom is based on a covenantal relationship that God has made. It has nothing to do with what I do. So we have that wonderful text in Galatians 4, in the next chapter. Galatians 4, 4 to 7. Look at that with me, please. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son. This is, you know, we like to read this at Christmas. But this is a message that we need to be reading really every day. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem so that he might free, so that he might liberate those who were under, under the law. Why? That we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We have to be free in order to be able to even consider God our Father. God has to send forth his spirit into our hearts so that we can cry to him as Father. Slaves cannot refer to God as Father. Therefore, verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Freedom lies in being adopted by God. That's what it means to be free. That you are a child of God. Freedom doesn't mean that you can do anything that you want. Freedom means that God has adopted you into His family. You were once outside. You were once an enemy. You were once in darkness. But now He has brought you into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, as, people, as Peter says, but now you are the people of God. Once you did not have mercy, now you have mercy. When I am born again by the grace of God through faith, He adopts me into His family. He makes me a son and He makes me a co-inheritor with Christ. There's freedom. There's freedom. It's not, it's not cheap and it's not something that gives you something that is cheap. It, it is bought with the precious blood of Christ 
and it makes you an inheritor with Christ. Wow! He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, we sing that. The wealth in every mine, that is yours and it's mine. Can you think about that? In, in Christ, we have everything. To be free is to be adopted by God. To be free is not to have God as our judge, but as our Father. And it is to have the full inheritance that Christ enjoys. And so we come to our last point, the fruits of freedom, in chapters 5 and 6. And we come to the text that was read for us in Galatians 5. Let's read verse 1 again. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. What freedom is... This is the freedom. The seed of freedom and the soil of freedom and the roots of freedom. This, This is the freedom that Paul is saying, this is the freedom for which Christ set you free. To be a child of God. To be, to be an inheritor with Christ by faith. This is the freedom for which Christ has set you free. This is the freedom which Christ paid for in His own blood. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Our freedom has a historical context. Our freedom has a theological context. Our freedom has a spiritual context. And we are meant to be anchored in it. If there is any hill that we need to die on, this is it. If, there, if, if we have to nail our colors to any mast, this is it. Salvation, justification is by the grace of God alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, because of the witness of Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Stand firm. Stand firm. Keep standing firm. So perseverance in freedom is a fruit of freedom. It's not... Yes, there is a... Freedom is a a once-off event whereby God causes us to be born again and we respond in faith and and we are justified. So yes, there is a once-off event, but it's not only a once-off event, it is a lifelong event. Keep being free, keep standing firm. Do not yield any ground. The person whom Christ has set free does not return again, does not submit again to the bondage of their former life, whatever that may be. Your freedom has been granted so that you will continue to stay free. That's a given. A Christian who is not persevering in freedom is perhaps a Christian who does not have freedom. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again do not be subject again means that there are going to be times when you're going to be tempted to go back again. There are going to be times when you are confronted and challenged to, to reject and, and, uh, and, and leave the freedom that was actually given to you to move to something else because that seems more enticing and more convincing. Or, but do not subject again. Do not yield. Be careful that you do not fall into that temptation. And look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Don't think freedom means doing as you please. Don't think freedom means that you can exercise your rights as a Christian to live however you please to the detriment and offense of your fellow believers. So what should I do? 
verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Freedom, gospel freedom, true freedom, results in holiness. To be free is to be holy. Why? Because God has set us apart. He has plucked us out of this world. He has given us a new life, a new heart. He has caused us to be born again. We are a new creation. We have new affections. We have new desires. We have a new willingness to love Him, submit to Him, honor Him, worship Him. What does freedom not look like? Verses 19 to 21, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, etc., etc. Jealousy. Outbursts of anger. Disputes, dissensions, factions, divisiveness. What does freedom look like? And we come to that wonderful verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Verse 24. Freedom looks like crucifying the flesh. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God has set you free, then listen to Him. Live your life under His direction. Submit the journey of your life to His guidance. Involve Him in your life. Don't just say, look, I'm okay on Sundays, but you know, the rest of the life I've got to do my own thing. Freedom looks like obedience to the Spirit of God. And so the fruit of freedom at least, at least looks like holiness and obedience. And chapter 6 lists out a whole, a whole lot more. Verse 1, gentleness that restores those who are in error. Verse 2, walking alongside one another so that we don't feel the weight of life by ourselves. Bear one another's burdens. That's a sign that you are free. That you can actually leave your own burdens for a while and go and help someone manage their burden because you can see them being crushed. Verse 4, assessing our own lives, not by, not by comparing it with one another, but against the Word of God. Verse 6, sharing the Word. Verse 9, being tireless in doing good to the saved and the lost. 14, boasting in not that anything that we have done, but what Christ has done for us. That's fruit of freedom. So if the seed of the gospel is planted in the soil of faith, and that faith is not just any faith, but faith in what Christ has done for us at the cross, and that faith is anchored in the ancient covenant of God to make us His adopted children by faith then that freedom will bear fruit of holiness and obedience we are only free if our lives display the fruit of freedom so as we wrap up I hope you will recognize the two extremes that Paul is talking about here on the one hand you have legalism do this, do this, do this, do this you don't do this, you're not going to be saved, do this, do this, do this but Paul's saying no, no, no we are justified by faith alone. But then on the other hand, you have licentiousness. Look, if you, if you are justified anyway, live as you please. No, no, no. You are not justified to live as you please. You are justified so that you can live holy, obedient lives. Both extremes are wrong. Both extremes will not 
will result in bondage. Legalism and licentiousness will both result in bondage. To be free, we must live holy and obedient lives. Let us heed the word of the Spirit in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, and it brings salvation to all men, and it instructs them what? To live as they please? No, it instructs them to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us so that we could be free, what? From every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Are we free? Are we living in the freedom that Christ has earned for us. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, we just want to thank you for just your word, which is just this textbook of instruction which keeps us on the straight and narrow. Father God, we want to thank you that there is nothing in our lives that cannot be corrected or instructed by your word. Lord, we want to thank you that every challenge that we face in our faith has an answer in your word. And Father God, we just pray that having understood some of this freedom that you have earned for us in Christ, that this freedom that you have promised thousands of years ago to Abraham in which we can now partake in, Lord. Father, we pray that you would help us to treasure this freedom, to regard this freedom, to protect this freedom, and Lord, to share it, to let others know that they too can be free as you have set us free, not by anything that we have done, but all because of what Christ has done for us. Help us to walk in freedom and help us to honor you till that day when we will be with you forever. We ask this for the sake of your Son. Amen.